Welcome to Module 14 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. In the last two modules, we talked about the content of procedural entitlements triggered by the various generic sources of procedural fairness. We focused on the right to be heard and then the assorted specific procedural requirements associated with it. In this module, we begin our discussion of the second broad class of procedural rights, nemo judex in suea causa. The literal translation of that Latin expression is, no one is judge in their own cause, but it's best described in administrative law as the right to an unbiased decision maker. Now, of course, it's entirely intuitive that a decision is unfair and probably grossly unfair if it is made by a biased decision maker. In the courts, we expect our judges to meet high standards of behavior in terms of their impartiality. And as you know, the concept of judicial independence, mentioned earlier in this course and studied in greater detail in other courses, comprises two elements. The first I'll call personal bias, or alternatively, an impartial state of mind. And the second involves independent institutional arrangements. As we'll see, these two same elements exist as part of nemo judex in administrative law, and so it's worth describing them in more detail. So first, what might we mean by this concept of personal bias, the impartial state of mind? Well, here we're talking about a decision maker making decisions in circumstances where they have no interest or stake in the outcome. There's an old statement often made that justice must not only be done, it must be seen to be done. And so the right to an impartial decision maker includes rules that prevent decision makers from having an interest in the subject matter of the case before them. Second, what do we mean by this reference to independent institutional arrangements? Well, here we're talking about the structure and the nature of the relationship between the decision maker and the rest of government or the parties that are before that decision maker. In the court context, we know that to be institutionally independent, a judge must have security of tenure, financial independence, and administrative independence, the three so-called pillars of judicial independence. What does institutional independence mean in the context of nemo judex in the administrative decision-making context? Well, as we'll see, administrative law contains some of these same preoccupations with structural distance from the decision-maker to the other branches of government or to parties appearing before the decision-maker. So before we turn to the specific details on these two branches of bias, let's ask the question, when is nemojudix triggered in administrative law? Well, you should gather from what we've said so far that nemojudix is part of common law procedural fairness. Remember, it's that second branch along with audiultrum partum. And therefore, in order for the entitlement to an unbiased decision maker to exist, there must be one of those triggers we've been talking about in our conversation so far, be it from the common law, from Section 7, from the Bill of Rights, or potentially from other sources of law that apply at the provincial level, such as provincial statutory enactments governing administrative procedure. 
So in order to rely on nemojudics, one has to be able to trace the existence of the procedural entitlement to one of these sources. In other words, one of these triggers must be pulled. Another observation before we get underway. Recall that in discussing the content of Audi Ultram Partum, the right to be heard, we noted repeatedly that the content of Audi Ultram Partum varies in the circumstances, and that the first step was to apply the Baker intensity test. That begs the question, does the Baker intensity test apply also in assessing bias? Well, there are definitely cases out there, including from the federal court, that do conduct a Baker analysis in discussing what the Nemojudex rule really requires. But that's far from universal, and indeed it may not even be that common. It is not at all clear, at least to me, how the intensity test really helps resolve questions around the test for bias. As we'll see, to the extent that the the content of the bias requirement varies with the circumstances, it does so with reference to, well, maybe a handful of the considerations at issue in Baker. In other words, it does not track the Baker decision very well at all. So while it may not be wrong to conduct a Baker intensity test in advance of applying the tests for bias, I would advise you to be attentive to those actual tests and specifically the jurisprudence suggesting that in the area of prejudgment, which we'll get to in a moment, there is a spectrum of bias tests ranging from reasonable apprehension of bias through to closed mind. That spectrum hinges, however, on considerations that are not at least a full reflection of the way that the Baker intensity test works. Okay, so let's talk about that first broad class then of bias the concept of personal bias or an impartial state of mind. So first question, does personal bias or the existence of a partial state of mind, that is a biased state of mind, require actual bias? Put another way, must the delegate in their actual mind have actual bias? Are you obliged as an applicant to demonstrate that in accusing a delegate of being biased? Well, the test for bias in nemojudics and administrative law is not, in fact, actual bias. You need not prove that the delegate had actual bias in their mind. That would be very difficult to do indeed. Instead, you must prove in most instances what's known as a reasonable apprehension of bias. And what, pray tell, is a reasonable apprehension of bias? Well, the leading definition is found in a dissent, actually, of a Supreme Court case called National Energy Board. Let me share that passage with you. The apprehension of bias must be a reasonable one, held by reasonable and right-minded persons, applying themselves to the question and obtaining thereon the required information. The test is, what would an informed person, viewing the matter realistically and practically, and having thought the matter through, conclude? Would they think that it is more likely than not the decision maker, whether consciously or unconsciously, would not decide fairly? So that's a classic statement of the test. And note its elements. It's an objective test. In other words, the apprehension of bias is a reasonable one held by the reasonable observer. And as you know from prior studies in law, reasonableness is a constant preoccupation for the courts in many areas of the law. It provides 
a veneer of objectivity, but of course it opens the door to varying subjectivity on, on the part of the judges who are asked to apply it. Nevertheless, it does suggest that there should be some quest for a universal expectation about what the bias standard really is. And that reasonable standard is indexed to a reasonable person who is apprised and has probed the facts. This is not simply a rumor of bias. It is not simply speculation about bias. This is an informed observer concluding whether bias exists or not on the facts. Now, how does this test work in the area of personal bias? And here I think we have to make a distinction between different manifestations of that personal bias, that impartial state of mind. Here we can talk about a broad category of circumstances that I call conflicts of interest versus another series of circumstances that I'll call prejudgment. And so under the heading of conflict of interest circumstances, here we're talking about associations or involvement of the decision maker that suggests that that person is not a disinterested participant because of those associations or involvement. And so examples of this sort of conflict of interest would be a personal financial stake in the outcome of the decision. And so the existence of an actual pecuniary interest in the outcome is disqualifying. Personal relationships also between the decision maker and a party can give rise to a reasonable apprehension of bias and also associations between the decision maker and other participants in the proceedings, such as counsel or witnesses. Those two can be associations that are disqualifying on a reasonable apprehension of bias standard. So too past professional relationships between parties, counsel, and the decision maker. All these sorts of associations can constitute, again, what I call conflicts of interest. Here, the test to be applied, at least so far in the jurisprudence, is always going to be that reasonable apprehension of bias. Let's distinguish those sorts of cases from what I call prejudgment. And prejudgment is a circumstance where the decision maker seems to have already formed an opinion on the matter, possibly arrived at a conclusion on the matter. So, for example, Prejudgment may arise because of external knowledge of the case or a prior involvement, say a prior involvement as a counsel in the case that you're now asked to adjudicate or prior involvement potentially as an investigator and now you've moved to an adjudicative phase and you've already arrived at a conclusion because of your investigation. Prejudgment can also arise where the decision maker has taken a past position on the matter that is now before the decision maker and is a subject of controversy. There is a reason, for example, for those of you who watch the process in front of the special committees that have been constituted in which parliamentarians ask questions of those persons that the prime minister has named to the Supreme Court. There is a reason why the person named to the Supreme Court will not answer questions about controversies or cases that may come before them in their role as a Supreme Court judge. Again, to do so would open the door to an accusation of prejudgment. Another possibility is the making of hostile statements or behavior before, after, or during the proceeding that suggests that the individual has some animus towards the party, their counsel, or other participants in the case, such that they might 
conclude the case contrary to the interests of those persons. That too can constitute a form of bias properly categorized in my view as a form of prejudgment. Now, we said with conflicts of interest style bias that there the standard would always be reasonable apprehension of bias. Is that true also for prejudgment? Well, the answer is no. The test for bias can vary for prejudgment. Just to name a few instances where this arose and then to provide you with a sense of the test for deciding what standard of bias should be applied. There's a case from the Supreme Court from the early 1990s called Old St. Boniface. There at issue was the conduct of a municipal councillor who had already taken a position on a zoning matter that was now before them in a decision-making capacity. Now recall that unlike other administrative decision-makers, municipal councillors are elected. They are not a legislature. They are not a sovereign parliament. They are an administrative body constituted by the province, but one in which the province has authorized their selection through election. They are subject, therefore, to administrative law, albeit somewhat peculiarly because they are administrative entities. Now, that creates a tension, a natural tension, because you might expect when someone is elected that they are elected on the basis of their views, and expressions of their views constitute the basis by which people decide whether to support them in the election or not. And so having expressed those views, if those persons were subsequently to act on those views as municipal councillors, could that give rise to an accusation of bias? There's an obvious tension there. And so the Supreme Court in the old St. Boniface case suggested that there would be a flexible approach in this sort of context in terms of applying the test for bias. Here, it would not be appropriate to apply that very demanding test of reasonable apprehension of, of bias with full vigor simply because the counselor had had this past positioning on the sort of zoning issue that was now before them. The legislature could not possibly have intended to have these people stand for office and then turn around and apply the same standard for bias that's applicable in the courts, that is, reasonable apprehension of bias. There is some degree of prejudgment, in other words, that we will accept for municipal councillors. On the other hand, the legislature could not have intended that this person, the municipal councillor, would be so fixated on their position that they could not budge from it, that they would be unamenable to persuasion. And so the Supreme Court said that while we will not impose the reasonable apprehension of bias standard on you as a municipal councillor, we will at least require you to have an open mind. Or to put it another way, the test for bias in this context is that of a closed mind. And it is therefore incumbent upon the applicant trying to persuade the court that this person is biased to show that there was no way in which the decision maker could be moved from their pre-existing opinion. As a footnote, I'd, I'd note that in the old St. Boniface case, the court also underscored that while this might be the rule for prejudgment, it would not apply to those sort of conflicts of interest that I described before. There, the regular reasonable apprehension standard would apply. In a related case called Save Richmond Farmland, the court had another instance to comment on the bias standard applied to a member of municipal council. There also they concluded that where questions of bias arise in relation to such an elected post, the standard would not be reasonable apprehension of bias, but rather that closed mind standard. And so again, at issue there would be 
an applicant persuading the court on judicial review that the counselor is no longer capable of being persuaded, that they have expressed a final opinion that is incapable of change. So that suggests, at least for municipal counselors, there will be a different standard of bias. What about more broadly? Well, in a subsequent case called Newfoundland Telephone, the Supreme Court was dealing with an administrative regulatory body. In fact, a board that was regulating the tariffs that could be charged by a telephone company. And the board actually had a dual role, uh, one that was much more investigative and policy-oriented, and then one that involved the actual adjudication of the specific tariffs that telephone companies would be entitled to charge their customers. And again, the question for the court was, what standard of bias should apply in these circumstances? Here, the court concluded that administrative bodies that are primarily adjudicative in their functions are expected to comply with the standards of bias applicable to courts. And what does that mean? Well, the reasonable apprehension of bias standard. Now, boards with popularly elected members, they suggested, as per Old St. Boniface and Save Richmond Farms, will have standards which are more lenient. And there, there would have to be proof of prejudgment such that any effort to persuade the decision maker to change their views would be futile. In other words, that person had a closed mind. But what about circumstances where it wasn't quite adjudicative and it wasn't like a municipal councillor, but it was a tribunal or board that had a much more, well, regulatory function driven by policy considerations. In other words, a policymaking board. Well, the court concluded that in these circumstances, too, the applicable standard would be closed mind, not reasonable apprehension of bias. Now, the tricky part in Newfoundland Telephone, and, and the part I struggle with personally, is that this board's function shifted with time. And so there was an investigative stage there. There would be wide license for the members of the board to make public statements that might otherwise give rise to a concern about prejudgment. Why? Because we were still in that policy space where the Supreme Court concluded that the test should be closed mind. But then at some point, the board's proceedings would shift to a hearing on the specifics of whether a given tariff should apply to a given telephone company. And that was a more adjudicative function where the standard of reasonable apprehension of bias was applicable. Now, of course, you had the same decision maker in both instances. And so at stage one, you had the investigative stage there. If the decision maker said something like, I hate you, but at least I'll hear from you and I have an open mind, that probably would violate the reasonable apprehension standard, but it would not violate the closed mind standard. And so there, the decision maker could probably stave off an objection based on bias because the standard at this stage is closed mind. Thereafter, at the hearing, could the applicant resuscitate that prior statement made during that investigative stage and say, look, I know it was made before the hearing, but it's the same person and presumably they haven't changed their perspective. And so now I ask you to apply the reasonable apprehension standard and recuse yourself from the decision making. Well, the decision in Newfoundland Telephone suggests that that prior statement is somehow exonerated or insulated from scrutiny at this later hearing stage. In fact, the Supreme Court focused entirely on what was said during that hearing stage and ultimately concluded that the decision maker in that case was biased on a reasonable apprehension standard, but because of what they said during the hearing stage and after it, not because of things that they said before it. And so there seems to be a firewall of sorts in these circumstances where a tribunal or board may have varying functions that shift with time. I personally don't find that a very satisfactory approach, but it is what it is.
And so what are the implications of these cases from the Supreme Court? Well, they suggest that there is, in fact, a spectrum in terms of how stringently the bias test will be applied, at least for prejudgment, when you're talking about different functions exercised by tribunals, boards, or decision makers. And so where you have a decision maker performing an adjudicative function, there you're likely to have a court conclude that the standard to be applied for bias is the reasonable apprehension of biased test. And that will be a good number of administrative decision-making exercises. However, in other circumstances where the decision is investigatory or policy-based or involves elected officials, and in practice that's almost always going to be a municipal councillor, although there are certain other boards in provincial jurisdiction who have elected members, there you're likely to be stuck with the closed mind standard, which is a much more generous accommodating standard for those who make decisions. Why? Because people who wish to object to the bias in that circumstance will have to show that there's no argument that would move that decision maker from their position. That then is all I'm going to say about the issue of personal bias and the question of impartial state of mind. When we come back in the next module, we'll spend some time talking about this second broad class of bias issues, that is institutional bias, or as I like to call it, a structural lack of independence. Until then, this ends Module 14.